ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode two of Yes or BS, the podcast where everything is true except the part that isn't. My name is Anthony Edmondson, and I do this podcast with my good friend Paul Anthony Jones, who is Hello. Yes, there he is. And he's the curator of Haggett Hawks, which a lot of you might know. So if you missed us last week, quick recap of the rules. Basically, me and Paul, we're going to have some interesting facts, could be on any subject, history, science, nature, whatever. And they could be completely true, or we could be completely making them up. We just have to kind of guess, see if, who's lying or not. And there's a point system in here somewhere. So if I correctly convince you that something is true and it's complete BS, then I get a point. I've got three good ones today. Ooh. I'm, I'm a bit worried because all of mine are kind of history based and I know you're a bit of a history buff. Whoa. I'm going to have you on this one. Like, oh, I'm going to have your life. <laughs> I've got a mix today. I've got some, uh, got some nature science and history so i'm, oh, hitting... I'm all right with nature okay we'll see. famous last words <laughs> i'm hitting the full trivial pursuit board today <laughs> with this one <laughs> and on that note jones i think let's just get cracking right so paul i'm going to start off with a nature fact with you today right. okay um, all right okay i'm braced mm-hmm. we're going to talk about ants one of my favorite little insects of all is that time. because they share your name it's part of the reason, okay, and part of because I just love ants. They're very fascinating. Right, features. okay, okay. I'm going to give you some bonus facts that you're going to quite enjoy, just to kind of ease you into this. Right. Did you know the fire ant worker takes up to 250 one-minute naps every day? Much like you, Paul, only, <laughs> only make that one-hour naps. <laughs> I take one 250-minute nap. Every couple of hours. Every, every 250 minutes. <laughs> So there you go. You're, you can relate to the fire ant. I can. On this one. Why does he anyway. take so many naps? Um, I don't know. That's not actually my main fact. I, just oh, want, I, wanted, right, okay. I wanted to warm you up with something fun. Right, and okay. like just, uh, just uh, My knowledge of fire ants is now <laughs> Because we're moving to the Argentinian ant for this oh, right, one. Okay. So my fact is, did you know there is a mega ant colony that is more than 6,000 kilometers long that stretches across almost the entire Mediterranean? One giant mega ant city okay yep and it was found by some researchers at the universities of cambridge and south florida respectively what compelled them to go and find this ant colony i don't know they found that when they picked up different ants from different parts of this giant colony mm-hmm. they instead of attacking each other which is what ants usually do right they would rub antenna in a friendly manner oh to did, say did hey i know about this <laughs> So just, it was to indicate that they were like, hey, we're the same colony, we're the same ants, let's right. not fight each other. Even though um, they were from sort of 6,000 kilometers apart. Yep. And actually the same ant colony, the same family is also on a stretch of 900 kilometers long in California. So how's these, that happened? Well, ants traveling around the world on shipping lanes and that stuff. Well, <laughs> ants traveling around the world. That's the title of your travel program. And I'm going to sell that to Channel 4. <laughs> I got this. Ants traveling around the world. Okay. All right. Now, there's a lot of information here. So yes. the oh, colony is sick. Oh, Ooh. before you go, I had, I had my last joke because having billions of relatives makes that Christmas card list a nightmare. <sighs> well, that's the sound of everyone <laughs> clicking their browsers <laughs> closed. Thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs> right. So, so the go ahead. colony... Is 6,000 kilometers wide? Uh, across. So it stretches from like uh, southern Spain, across ooh, France, all sorts, all parts of southern Europe is where right. it stretches. 6,000 kilometers long. 
rather than okay. wide because right. that would just cover all of Europe. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. So it stretches from sort of Spain to like the Adriatic or something. Yes. Right. However long six thousand kilometers is from from Spain. Iberia. Sort okay. Of. And it's unbroken? I'd imagine it's not one continuous ant colony. Line of ants, like yeah, Tom it's and so, Jerry. Yeah, it's more like giant colonies, another giant colony, then right. the next one, then the next one, the next but one. But they all happen to be from basically same, the same family. Same family of ants. Right, so okay. Don't attack each other. Okay. And how did they end up in California? You're saying this was through imports and exports? It is, but actually, because it's the Argent- Argentine ant, they travel the most, apparently. They didn't bother to build a mega colony in Argentina. No. <laughs> apparently, but... So are they like an invasive species? They will be, yes. So, so they're must not have... native to Europe. Yeah, I couldn't tell you exactly when they came over, but it must have been, obviously, when colonisation started, so... So, right, okay, so this is an ant from Argentina. <laughs> I don't think it was just one, one ant that came over. One pregnant so, ant. So oh, friends. dear. <laughs> He's got his little tickets. <laughs> what a big and big. Um, okay, so somehow the Argentine ant has made its way to the Mediterranean. Yes. Formed a colony mm-hmm. uh, 6,000 kilometres long. Yes. Stretching pretty much almost unbroken from one end to the next, sort of in clumps of larger colonies. Yes. Okay. And this was found out when? 2009 by a Japanese scientist called uh, Iriki Tsunamura. University of Tokyo, who was working with universities of Cambridge and South Florida. Okay, this is a real international concern. Mm. And California, that was the same thing. It's... Yes, same family of ants. They introduced them again. They're like, hey, Andy, and... Andy Marge. And... <laughs> <laughs> Andy Marge. <laughs> That's seen you in centuries. Um... We left. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm going to make a decision on this. Ooh, go for it. I think you've made this up. I think that this is BS. Final answer? Yeah. I'm afraid it's true, Paul. It's true. Yeah. Mega colony of ants. I got this 6, from... 6,000 kilometres long. Got this from the BBC. The, oh, one, so one, of the more rep, one of the more reputable sources that I use for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Good grief. Yep. There you go. So that's one... That's impressive. Wow. Opening up one nil to me. Beat you on Nature Jones. Okay, you just got me on nature, mm-hmm. so I'm going to try and get you on history, which I know is a bit of a specialist subject of yours, apparently. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Edward VI, mm-hmm. who was the young son of Henry VIII, mm-hmm. if you remember your history, I'm sure you already knew that. Yes, died as a child. Yeah, didn't get him confused with anyone else. <laughs> um, Edward VI was the first king mm-hmm. um, to charter an expedition to the Arctic. So, a bit of background about Edward VI. Um, He was nine years old when Mm -hmm. he was crowned in Mm -hmm. 1547. He died when he was 15 Mm -hmm. because he was a very sickly child. He was. Much Um, like you, Paul. But uh, I saw past that heady (laughs) heady age of 15, (laughs) struggled on it in my 30s. Uh, So, he died in 1553. Now, it was in the same year that he died, it was in 1553, that uh, he charted this expedition. Because mm-hmm. he was always very interested in geography. <laughs> uh, he learnt <laughs> how to read a compass. I'm ready to answer already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he learnt how to read a compass from none other than Sebastian Cabot, mm-hmm. uh, who was the son of John Cabot, who was the um, explorer who travelled all down the east coast of America. Mm-hmm. And he was the guy who basically had this brainwave that they should try and establish a trade route through the Arctic mm-hmm. from Britain to the Far East. Okay. Now, this idea was originally passed by Henry VIII, but he turned it down because he had other things to do, like 
get through his six wives and <laughs> sever the church apart and things. And explode at his own funeral. Yes, <laughs> and destroy monasteries. Uh, so the idea was sort of shelved for about 20 years and then knowing that Edward was interested in geography, mm-hmm. Sebastian kind of pitched it again and little Edward there signed on the line and <laughs> the expedition was... You're really painting a beautiful picture there. <laughs> it's exactly how it happened. <laughs> and the expedition went ahead. Uh, so it left in, in 1553, but... Tragedy struck. Mm-hmm. Uh, it only got as far as the White Sea, up to Murmansk, mm-hmm. uh, in the sort of far north of Russia. Mm-hmm. The ship became encased in ice, um, splintered to pieces. Everyone except one person died, mm-hmm. um, and his name was Richard Chancellor. Mm-hmm. And uh, he made it to the mainland, and somehow, by hook or by crook, got back to Moscow. Mm-hmm. Um, and was received by Ivan the Terrible, <laughs> who happened to, happened to be in charge of Russia at the time. Ooh. And uh, Richard had with him a letter <clears throat> from uh, King Edward, and he handed this over to Ivan the Terrible, and it was so sort of glowing in its praise mm-hmm. um, that it started a whole new era of trade between Russia and England. I can tell you what the letter said, if you really want to know. I have a short extract from it. Go on, let's, let's hear it. That I made up myself. <laughs> I uh, it said, the king, To the kings, princes, and other potentates inhabiting the northeast parts of the world. That's who it was addressed to. Mm. And Ivan the Terrible thought that this was lovely and made best friends with everyone. Ivan the Terrible thought this was lovely. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Of course, by this point, um, Edward had probably popped his clogs and it would have been, or was it Mary the First next? Mm. Yeah, there you are. This is a really tough one. Quite a story. It is. It sounds so plausible. Mm -hmm. What was the name of the ship? That I don't know, actually. Mm. Did they not record the name of the ship anywhere? It probably would have been recorded somewhere. It's just I didn't look it up, obviously. Mm. Um, So you're saying John Cabot led... The expedition. No, it was um, Sebastian Cabot. It was John Cabot's son ah. who came up with the idea behind it. The expedition itself was led by a guy called Sir Hugh Willoughby. Mm. Uh, so he was he actually did the sort of travelling and the captaining of this. Part of me thinks you've just Googled popular names in Tudor England. <laughs> <laughs> You're just throwing these all out there. Hugh Willoughby and Richard <laughs> Chancellor are what I call my hands. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, where were they trying to get to? They wanted to get to the Far East they via get, yeah. this, the Arctic. Yeah, they were trying to connect, basically connect England with the Far East with China via the Arctic. So, was this like a popular theory at the time? Had they, obviously, this is long after Columbus, so they've connected the connected the dots for a, hmm. for a globe. So, was this popular theory? I, I'm guessing so. I mean, hmm. um, Marco Polo was 1400s. 1300s, I think. 1300s. Hmm. So this is, you know, quite a while after that. So the knowledge of the world is getting better, but it's not perfect yet. So it's the sort of idea of the Northwest Passage. It's that kind of mm. thing, but going the other way. Again, this sounds so plausible. I'm trying to read your facial expression on this one because I'm not we, sure. We've already a... established that I have a terrible poker face. <laughs> I'm leaning towards this, this. I think there's too many facts peppered in there for this to be true. Because you've got a lot of names in there, a lot of dates. I think someone did write a letter to Ivan the Terrible. That's I think the letter is real. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it was. It's actually, what was the trading between England and Russia with this magical that, I trade know. agreement? I just yeah. know that Ivan the Terrible was so sort of staggered by this story that uh, he looked to expand trade to England. Whether trade eventually went ahead with, with Mary Tudor or not, I don't mm-hmm. know. But um, yeah. I think I've got a good feeling on this one. I think I'm ready to answer. Okay, what are you calling it? 
Right, I think the letter was written. The letter is true. It's whoever it was written to, it's true. But I think the whole fact of this find a way through the Arctic is a lie. BS. You're saying BS? I am. That entire fact is true. No. Yeah. Well done, Jones. Yes. I've but... <laughs> only got one. <laughs> I might like, but actually lose this one. <laughs> Yeah, I'm mixing science and nature for this one. Okay. So we're going back to 1925, no, sorry, 1929 at uh, Princeton University. Okay. Where, in an interesting experiment, a cat was turned into a telephone. Right, I'm ready to call this one. Right. <laughs> okay. No, now, before you jump to conclusions. A cat was turned into a telephone. It was. Was it Schrodinger's cat? <laughs> no, it wasn't Schrodinger's cat. Okay. In fact, the cat wasn't named. Um, it was an anonymous cat. But basically, these two scientists at Princeton, it was kind of the initial stages of researching the cochlear implant. So to improve people's hearing, it was a lot of research done around the auditory nerve, which is the same in most mammalian brains. It's like, so they picked a cat. This is a good example. Nice, mm-hmm. pliant creature to work with. They had it all drugged up and everything. Yes. So this is this is before animal rights, obviously, and yes. uh, before animal rights testing. So before over. people realised cats are dickheads. <laughs> well, that's well, that's all the cat lovers turned off there straight away. <laughs> so basically, these two um, scientists, the professor Ernest Glenn Weaver and his assistant Charles William Bray, were at Princeton. So they're doing this auditory nerve research. Mm-hmm. So obviously they've got the cat sedated. Um, they opened the skull so they could access the auditory nerve. And they attached a telephone wire to the nerve. And the other end of the wire was connected to a telephone receiver in another room. And the assistant, William Bray, would speak into the cat's ear. Mm-hmm. And Professor Weaver could listen on the receiver in the other room. And he could right. hear him quite clearly. Right. And yeah, it was 50 feet away, apparently, in a soundproof room. So there was proof that we can turn this cat into a telephone. And they found, it kind of, yeah, like I was saying, they laid the foundation for cochlear implants. And there you go. That's that story done. Right. Okay. So what were these people's names again? Uh, Ernest Glenn Weaver and Charles William Bray. Right. Weaver and Bray. Okay. And cochlear implants. So they are, they're, they're sort of hearing aids. Yeah, sort of like hearing aids. It was the first basis of what they thought could be made into a hearing aid. So they used a cat just right. as in any old example. Right, okay. And so there wasn't sort of wires trailing out of the cat. There wasn't. There was just... <laughs> it wasn't like you'd, you picked the cat up. <laughs> and that's it. The cat would meow, hello? Who's <laughs> there? So, oh, Professor Bray or whatever. Yeah, that. They haven't actually made the cat into a telephone handset. <laughs> no. <laughs> They're talking into the cat's Although, ear, and, yes. so they're proving that um, it was. It was. They were proving that the auditory nerve specifically picked up sound vibrations. So right. when they tried plugging this phone wire into the different parts of the cat's brain, mm-hmm. they heard nothing on the receiver in the other right. room. It was like, right, that's the nerve that deals with sound vibrations. Right. So if we plug crap into there, as you can tell, I've got a very strong scientific background. Yes. This is helping your case immeasurably. (laughs) So um, they put some sort of implant slash telephone receiver in the cat's... Just the telephone wire. Wire. They plugged it into the auditory nerve. Into the auditory nerve of the cat. Um, The assistant spoke into the cat's ear. Right. And that sound travelled into the auditory nerve. Right. Down the wire. Oh, it's like the cat. Oh, what am I listening to? Oh, this someone's talking. Yeah. And that wire travelled 50 feet away to a soundproof room where they heard it. Professor Weaver could hear on a okay. phone receiver. So um, I don't understand a lot about science, but <clears throat> that 
does seem to make sense. Mm-hmm. That process seems to make sense. There's mm-hmm. probably better ways to spend your time. <laughs> not going to lie. But that does make sense. Uh, what year are you saying that this uh, happened? 1929. 29. So it's still... It's not too early in the days of telephone communications and things. It's quite late. Telephone was 1885? Something like that. I forget so, yeah, exactly so we're when. talking about sort of... What, what, three and a half decades since then? Okay, mm. so yeah, it's, it, yeah, science has come on, mm-hmm. certainly. And this was at Princeton? Yes. Okay. Now, this is strange because I happen to know that, in like, experiments along these lines used to go on. <clears throat> mm-hmm. I, the, I know there was a guy who put electrodes into a bull's brain mm-hmm. and sort of worked it like... A, <laughs> Like you would a, a sort a of... of... <laughs> oh, you've worked work a bull. It's like you would or a, a bull, whatever, of... whatever floats your boat. Yeah, like you would a remote control car. He kind of did that <laughs> and he was able to sort of stop it charging and things. So yeah, I know okay. that this sort of science did go on, hmm. which makes me think the sort of patchy grasp of science that you've got <laughs> here and the fact that this science exists and the fact that the date matches up makes me think that this might be true. Mm-hmm. Um... Do you know anything more about the science? Like, did it actually lead to the cochlear implant, or was, or was this their crowning glory, <laughs> making a well, cat? They, they, would, a they, they used to market it. Like, they would sell these cats everywhere. <laughs> Electro, the cat had to be alive for it to work as well. So, did no, they become um, meowed a roller? Jesus, right? So we both had one terrible joke <laughs> this episode. Then, right? We're even on that one at least. Okay. Anyway, meowed a roller. Go <laughs> <laughs> No, I don't know if it actually led directly, because I don't know when the, the final or the first version of the cochlear implant was invented. Mm. I just know that this was the basis of the research for it. Okay, okay. Right, I'm ready to call this. Okay. I think that's true. I think, yes, I think that's completely true. You're correct, it is completely yes. true. Oh, Paul's take, he's taking the lead. Yes. Go! Oh, what am I going to do? <laughs> <laughs> right, Scott, pull it back with this next one. Yeah. Uh, right, okay. Mm-hmm. I've got another fact for you. Go for it. Um, now, there are lots of flags mm-hmm. around the world, and some of them have quite strange emblems on mm-hmm. them. Uh, the flag of Mozambique mm-hmm. has a Kalashnikov on it. No, I know that is true. Yeah. I've dad. Um, yeah. The flag of Bermuda has a shipwreck mm-hmm. on it. There are lots of flags in Latin America that have a cap on a stick. <laughs> In the middle of them, because that's a, an emblem of sort of liberty, apparently. Mm-hmm. Uh, but did you know that the flag of the Benin Empire mm-hmm. was a picture of someone being decapitated? Mm, okay. Okay, so the Benin Empire is different from the modern nation of Benin, which is in West Africa. This is, um, it, it was quite a sort of large area of Africa. It's now in what's now Nigeria. Mm-hmm. Uh, it existed from somewhere in, in the 12th century, if not even earlier right through to 1897, mm-hmm. when it was annexed uh, by Britain. And the flag was red, and it had two uh, white figures drawn on it, one of whom was chopping the other's head off mm-hmm. with quite a large sword. Okay. Now, before we get into this fact, mm-hmm. I have to let you know I did History of the Atlantic Slave Trade at university. Okay. So we did quite a bit about the kingdoms of Benin and Dahomey in West Africa. Yes. But... Did you ever come across their flags? We didn't. Okay. But I do remember a lot of the facts about the kind of dates you're talking about there. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So why did, why did they have someone chopping someone's head off? Uh, now, this is, this is interesting because um, according to the Greenwich Museum 
mm-hmm. which does a lot of this kind of history of things. They are unsure whether this flag was actually used for the entire empire. Mm-hmm. But when uh, <coughs> Benin was annexed by the British in 1897, this flag was brought back mm-hmm. by British troops to London. They kind of said this is the symbol of the empire. What they think is that it was a flag that was used tribally mm-hmm. um, by a people called the Edo or Edo, um, who they think acted as a sort of mediator between the locals and um, the the sort of ruling British. Okay. So perhaps it was a symbol of sort of tribal balance or tribal... Tribal warfare. Warfare, maybe. Yeah. So who brought this flag back? Uh, who took it back to this Greenwich Museum? That, I don't know. I'm, I'm guessing it was the people who were, the, the British people who were involved in the annexation at the end of the 19th century. That's a very broad... Uh, Oh, it was some random colonial colonial types yeah. took the flag back. Whoever was involved in the handover, the annexation. Okay, so when was this flag created? Um, who's designed it? I mean, I need more. I need all, more details all, behind all this I can flag. Tell you is that why it was probably a tribal flag used by the Edo or Edo hmm. people. As, as as for when it was used, um, how widely it was used, what what, what the design hmm. is said to represent, I can't tell you that. The, the thing so you've, is that, you've what, basically come with a fact which has no background to it at all. It has dates. And you've come I with can some tell you dates, what it looks like. some dates, and a vague mention of British people taking the flag back. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> okay. Right. Does it sound plausible? It sounds plausible. Uh, how many? So you said it could be the Edo or Edo tribe. Mm. Um, do you know what Edo means or what sort of language uh, comes no. from? We're, um, we're talking West Africa. Do you know how many tribes were made up the Empire of Benin? No. Wow, Paul, you're not. <laughs> you're I mean, I'm, I'm me. stunning you with my uh, knowledge. Yeah. On this basis, I'm leaning towards because I know you do like flags. You like uh, countries, capital cities. Yeah, it's one of my niche. Geography trivia. One of my niche subjects. So my gut reaction when you first brought up flags was that it's total BS just because you love flags. Mm -hmm. And, oh, he's going to try and knock us out on this one. But but because you've given me so little in terms of background behind it, Mm -hmm. I think this is actually true. So I'm I'm ready to guess and I'm going to say this one is true. The flag of Benin had someone being decapitated on it. Yes. You think that's true? Yes. It is true. Ah, you knew it. Because there was just, there wasn't enough meat behind that story. There's very, there's very like, little uh, I can tell you about it, other than that, yes, it was actually used. Mm. Yeah, one of the strangest flags in history. Well, that makes it two all now, and on to my final fact. I want to finish on history today, because I, I can't do an episode of this without having some sort of history fact in it. Mm-hmm. We're travelling back to ancient Rome. Right. And to one of the most psychopathic emperors who ever existed. There's quite a lot of competition. There is. There was a lot of a lot of nut jobs mm-hmm. around the empire. But this is Emperor Caracalla. He ruled the Roman Empire from 198 AD to 217 AD. Now, among many of his other psychopathic acts that he carried out, he killed his own brother. He kind of you had the original red wedding which i know you don't watch game of thrones no, but uh, but i've heard of but basically in order to kind of subdue the parthians he offered to marry the parthian king's daughter right. they all got to the wedding ah just killed the lot just for the crack okay he's like right let's do that and he was also stabbed to death while taking a pee right okay but That's quite a life he has quite a life but as every psychopath has some has their crazy tics and tendencies. Mm-hmm. So did Caracalla. He was a big sufferer of leverphobia. 
Now, I don't know if you know what that is from your Haggard Hawks uh, words. Yeah, L-E-V. Yeah, L-E-V-O. Uh, it's basically fear of having objects to the left side of the body. Oh, right. Okay. And as you might know, this was quite a thing in the Roman Empire because the yeah. word sinister, sinister yeah. uh, left-handed, they yeah. didn't trust the left side of the body. And he took this to kind of the next level because right. he, he feared that because there were so many assassinations of emperors that he was going to be killed from the left side of his body. Right, okay. Because as a child, he went to um, a liver reading from a soothsayer. A liver reading. Yes, they're quite popular in the Roman Empire. Okay. Well, you know, it's you know the soothsaying types, like yes. reading entrails, uh, reading yeah. all sorts of stuff. Okay. So basically, as a kid, this soothsayer said, watch out for your left-hand side because that's where you're going to die from. Okay. He's like, right. Obviously, you tell that to a child who's already a psychopath. Right. You're going to mess them up. Yeah. So he basically hired footmen to make sure he entered rooms always right foot first. He, when he was in the Senate, he would walk around the left-hand side. So the wall was always on his left. And he would exit right. by completing a circle of the Senate. Or he would back out the way he came. Okay. So he, he never... He always had... Cover on his left-hand side. Cover on his left-hand okay. side. Okay. He even had his... He moved the imperial seat in the Senate to the far left corner on entering. So he, okay. would, he would look at the Senate from an angle, he would, when he would address them. Right, okay. Um, he would also lead armies only from the far left flank as well and have other generals lead right. the centre and the right. Like Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> he was, yes, Jeremy Corbyn of ancient Rome. He would <laughs> only leads armies from the far left. Yeah, so um, basically he was killed by one of his bodyguards who ironically stabbed him from the right-hand side. I was going to ask about that. Which was uh, the Praetorian Guard got pretty sick of him and his psychopathic tendencies. Yeah. And as the Praetorian Guard would often do, they would just murder emperors just for the crack. Yeah, just to get rid of him. What were his last words? All the irony? <laughs> Don't damn that soothsayer. <laughs> okay. All right, then. Now, this all sounds very, very plausible because mm-hmm. um, the Romans were characters, <laughs> to put it nicely. Um, they were, what was his name? Caracalla. Right. I've never heard of him. Mm-hmm. Um, and what was his dates? Uh, 198 AD to 217. Okay. All right, then. He, um, can, he ruled jointly with his brother for a time, which is why he killed his brother. Right. It was kind of that period where Roman emperors would have would double up yes. and like have two emperors. Like Marcus Aurelius and Commodus did it as well. Right. They were joint emperors. For was this time. the flanks of the empire idea, or was this no? Just that a came. Joint rule? That came. That was like the east-west yeah. split that came later. Like during his time, he still controlled the entire right. empire. Right. Okay. This. I think this sounds plausible. Mm. You threw the word liver reading in there, <laughs> which sort of threw me a little bit. <laughs> no, it's a thing. Uh, yeah. Uh, yes. Examining entrails is, yeah. is... I've never heard it called liver reading. It was very specific liver reading from this soothsayer. Okay. And he was told to avoid the left-hand side because that's how he was going to be killed. Yes, because the soothsayer said, okay. you'll be struck, struck down from the left. Right. Okay. I think I think this... I, I think I'm coming down on true for this. Mm-hmm. I think this sounds very, very plausible. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and you've given so many examples of his hatred of the left-hand side, I think. <laughs> The thing is, I see, I hate this game. Because <laughs> I know what you're like, and I can just imagine you sitting there making Beaver up all it for these... hours at a time, thinking of ridiculous facts. Yeah, making up all these different ways that mm. he would have protected his left hand side. Mm. And the fact that he was eventually stabbed from the right is just, yeah, it's it kind of smacks of a real historical mm. anecdote. I, I, yeah, I'm going to say that this is true. I'm going to say yes. It's a lie. Oh. Total BS. He was a psychopath. 
Yeah. Like, but uh, he didn't have any fears of anything, I don't oh. think. He was just... Uh, Whoa, that was a good one. That was really good. You totally had me going I spent there. far too long writing that one up. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was a good 40 minutes thinking, oh, God, Ooh, what's a good fear? <laughs> is the bit about being stabbed while he was having a pee, is that true? Yeah, that's true. He was, right, he was okay. murdered. I don't know if it was from the left or the right, though. But, but not uh, the fear of Not the fear the of the left, yeah. Oh, that's annoying. Ooh, nice. We're on, ooh, 3-2 to me now. This is it, this is it, Paul. Right. Okay, last fact. Mm -hmm. The best I can hope for now is a draw, which is mm. really annoying. Um, so I'm going to maybe play to my strengths here. I'm going to go with literature. Um, so, uh, do you know what a snowball sentence is? I'd imagine it's something that just keeps running on and on, maybe. Oh, yeah, yeah. that's not a bad idea, yeah. Mm. Um, it's a sentence where each word is one letter longer than the previous one. Yeah. Um, and one of the most famous examples of a snowball sentence, which is technically known as a ropalic sentence, <laughs> um, is a work, a really early work by uh, Dr. Seuss, mm -hmm. which is called I Am Not Jack. So it's one, two, three, four. Um, okay. So there are lots and lots of books that use basically what's called constrained writing, which is where you write to a rule. So there's that novel Gadsby, which is written in 1939, which doesn't mm -hmm. use a single letter E. Really? Yeah. Oh, I should have used that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I would, yeah, I would, I would, I know that one. Yeah, it's, um, that's called a lipogram. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's by Ernest Vincent Wright. He wrote that in 1939. Um, there's a book called Alphabetical Africa, mm -hmm. uh, which is by um, a guy called Walter Abish, which published in 1974. All the words in chapter one begin with A. All the words in chapter two begin with A and B. Mm -hmm. uh, chapter three, A, B, and C all, words. All the all words. All the words. You should have used this fact. You get, to, you get to the middle of the book. <laughs> chapter 26 uses any word that he wants. 27, he takes out the Z words. 28, takes out the Y words until you get to chapter 52 again, which has all the A words. And this isn't even the main fact, this is it? You fact. should have you totally used that one because I, I, I would have called that. <laughs> I thought these were quite well known. No, I, I don't read anything. I on, read. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> on a list of unusual uh, books um, is this Dr. Seuss book. Hmm. Uh, so it was, he, he wrote it in 1927, which was almost a decade before he published his first sort of proper Dr. Seuss book. Mm. Uh, which was in 1936. So it was written, we think, just sort of more for his own amusement. Mm. He did, we do know, pitch it to his publishers who were Vanguard Press, mm -hmm. but they turned it down because apparently some of the vocabulary, because the words get longer and longer, the mm. longer the sentences, some of the vocabulary wasn't very it good. It was for, incomprehensible. Yeah, it wasn't good for sort of children readers. Mm. So uh, do you want to know what the plot of... I, I'm not Jack. Go on then. I'm going to ask for some sentences later, but come on. What's oh, the plot? I, I have a sample. I haven't got the whole thing. Oh, otherwise go on. We'll let's, let's, let's stick with the plot first. Otherwise, though. we'll get done for copyright. <laughs> yeah. Reading out full books. <laughs> um, yeah, so basically, it's a sort of typical Dr. Seuss poem. And it's about um, someone who gets very, very angry that no one knows what his real name is. Mm -hmm. And he goes on this long spiel about what his name isn't. Hmm. But you don't actually ever find out what his name really is. Hmm. So I have an extract. I am not Jack. I am not Mac. I am not John, Peter, Robert, neither. I am not Theo, Aaron, either. So for a, so it's a, a snowball a, sentence. Every new sentence starts again as a yes. snowball. Ah, gotcha. Because I was going to say that's like one, two, three, four. One, one two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Five, six, seven. So each each new sentence, each new line. Hmm. Um, yeah, and that's what it was. It was never published in his lifetime. Um, we only know about it because we found it in his notebooks after he died. He died in 1991. Mm. 
um, and his sort of records were released to the public. Mm. And, and uh, yeah, that was uh, that's the only time it was ever published. Okay, this is very plausible. It's it's the kind of thing Dr. Zeus would do. But would you have sat down and probably thought about... Because the thing is, for this to be false, you would have had to sit down and write a Dr. Zeus-style book. <laughs> well. I'm like, oh, does, does Paul have the time? To write Do I have the talent? <laughs> I should have been the fit. Does, does he have the talent to write a Dr. Zeus-style book? Uh, did you ever, with the clues in there to what his name actually was? Or was no, it just the, never... sort of, the sort of crux of the poem is that it's never actually revealed what he's mm. called. It, it, it's sort of like a process of elimination. Mm. He reads out lots and lots of names that aren't his mm. and then never actually tells you what it is. Well, there's your problem, not Jack. You, you're never going to get people to guess if you keep telling them yeah. other people's names. Yeah. What's, he's, not, he's not thinking straight there, is he? Okay, <laughs> uh, what year? Like, so you say they found it in his notes in 1991. Does it say what year he wrote? Yeah, he wrote one? it in 1927. 1927? Like yeah, so he was born uh, 1904. Mm, so he's, uh, he, he worked. He worked in publishing himself when he was when he was young. So he's like twenty five, um, 20, early twenties. Yeah. 20s, okay. I think he worked as a something like a copy editor in his mm. early twenties before he went into publishing himself. Do you have some examples of the the really long run on sentences where the publisher said that's ah, too much for kids? No, I don't know. Um, I do know that uh, the longest word in the book is eleven letters. So it it sort of works up to quite long sort of. Mm. polysyllabic words which um, considering this is the guy who wrote Green Eggs and Ham it's, uh, <laughs> it's pro- pro- it, it was probably turned down because because the vocabulary got a bit too complicated mm. okay do you know what that 11 letter word was? no I don't no mm. I don't I think I'm leaning towards an answer on this one okay just because I don't think you would have had the time to write out a Dr. Zustar sentence I'm going to say this is true okay you're saying that Dr. Zeus wrote a book of snowball snowball sentences yes and you said that i can't write like that (laughs) (laughs) not that you can't just that you're too lazy to give it a go okay you know this is for the match it is you can't swim against it now the whole thing is bs no (laughs) (laughs) no i'm quite proud of my dr seuss poem That was really believable. Yeah. Hey, well done, Jones. Thank you. Yeah. I pulled that back out. I was oh, it's sweating. Be- it's because I thought I knew you so well that he's never going to bother trying to <laughs> write a doctor's. You have no idea how long that took me. To come up with. <laughs> that was like my Emperor Caracalla fact. <laughs> Sitting there in a dark room for hours. Oh, God, I'm going to get it with this one. Hey, well done, Jones. So it's ended three all. I'll take that. Yeah. I'll take that. Well, well done. You too, Paul. And thanks everyone for listening. I hope you got all the answers right. Um, I hope you all believed as I did. Paul would never be able to have the talent to uh, to write a Doctor Zeus style. I've, I've like missed my call, and I should have uh, uh, become a poet. No, seriously, though, well done, no, Paul. Um, thanks everybody, and don't forget to tune in next time. <laughs>